You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. We will be doing most of the balance of the chapter, and then next week we will be taking up the the last little part that we don't get to this morning, and next week we should do all of chapter 14. So this morning in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, continuing continuing with the parables, we are now in a section known as the Kingdom Parables. And we are picking it up in verse 24. So before you get too relaxed, stand up. We will honor the reading of God's word in verse 24. We also have it up here on the screen if you'd like to follow with us that way. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Excuse me. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and also produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found uh, one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth." Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, 
Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Lord, would you add your understanding to the reading of your word? This is your word. It is the word of God. And may we approach it as such, and may we look to you to be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So as you can tell from the first parable that we covered last week, which was the parable of the sower and the soils, uh, Jesus gave this parable and gave a, a parable about how the seed in that situation was the word of God. And as the sower went out to sow, the word of God was sown on the soil. The soil was men's hearts. And he gave the illustration of four different kinds of soil. He gave the illustration of the seed falling on the hard path. And of course, those were the, the parts around the edges of the fields where people would travel. And there was no opportunity for the seed to take root or grow. In fact, it couldn't even penetrate the ground. And the birds of the air would come and snatch away the seed before anything could happen with it. Soil number two was the soil that was uh, thinly veiled over ledge over rock. It wasn't very deep, and when the sun hit it, it was warm and provided an optimum condition for things to spring up. But in that moment, it would grow very quickly. There was no depth for the root, and it died and quickly withered away. And then the third soil, as we looked at it last week, was the soil where there's weeds that are mixed in with the, the good word of God growing in the hearts of people, but the worries and the cares of the world choke out the fruitfulness of the word. We talked about that. And then, of course, there's the fourth soil, which was where the word of God takes root. There are no weeds. And where there is a fruitfulness in the life of the believer, 30, 60, and 100-fold. So Jesus then went and he explained that parable and gave us the, the way to look at the parables and the way of understanding them, gave us sort of a primer on parables. And as we continue today, uh, just going through these parables, we now understand in these remaining six parables, we have three sort of looking at the issue of the kingdom of God from the point of view of what will it become. And then we have three looking at the issue of the kingdom of God sort of for its quality and what happens. How does God look at the kingdom of God and what happens on the, the earth or in the world with the kingdom of God? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, <clears throat> as we come to verse 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, Jesus, of course, a little bit later, interpreted this for us, but let's just read through it again so we can get it firmly in our minds and understand what he's saying here. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and to gather them up? And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. In other words, the roots of the weeds or of the tares would have found their way and wound it around the roots of the good seed growing. And if you pull up the weeds, you would pull up the good wheat. And so he said, uh, rather than do that, let's wait until the harvest time. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we'll come to that in a moment just to take it in the order that the text gives it to us. But as we come to this next verse, verse 31, the mustard seed, it says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So in these first three, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, and the next one, the parable of the leaven, 
Jesus is giving us something interesting about the kingdom of God, but some different aspects as to how the kingdom of God comes. And keep in mind, we believe that Jesus is speaking not just about the kingdom of God in a broad way, but going forward that he's looking at the church that would come uh, after his departure from the day of Pentecost and forward. So he says here, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So we know from looking at the other uh, parallel passages, if you're interested in looking at that, uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 30 through 34, and in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. And in both of those places, he gives a uh, similar story. In uh, Mark's account, Mark chapter 4, verse 32, it says, But when it is sown... It grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, when these herbs were planted, uh, herb plants uh, grow maybe to a few feet, but they aren't intended to grow up into something incredibly large or a very large tree. And it would seem as we read this here that there's something peculiar about the parable of the mustard seed, it seems that this mustard plant grew into something that was so big that the birds of the air could come and make nests in it. It became more like a tree than it did like a bush. You would expect uh, an herb plant, if you've ever seen them growing, you can always buy the seedlings in the stores locally here. They typically don't grow very large. And they might grow as big as a small bush. They could even be several feet in diameter and height, but for it to grow uh, to the place that it says here in verse 32 and becomes a tree, something is unusual when this happens. Now, for most of these parables, there are at least two different points of view on what they might mean. Um, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Some, even most, regard this as a description of the growth and the eventual dominance of the church, the kingdom community. Yet in light of both the parable itself and the context of the parables, both before and after, this should be regarded as another description of corruption in the kingdom community. In other words, the kingdom of God, or if you will, the church, becomes corrupted as it grows over time just as the previous parable of the wheat and the tares described, which we'll get into in a moment. Now, there's sort of another view that says, well, uh, both these parables are prophetic, and they were intended to show principally how from very small beginnings the gospel of Christ should pervade all the nations of the world and fill them with righteousness and true holiness. I believe that's true. The gospel should go to the ends of the earth, uh, and we believe that is what our Lord has commanded that we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But this also seems to be saying that the church, especially in the latter days, would perhaps grow into something that it was not meant to be. And I think today probably the most obvious kind of thing to us could be two examples. One of those would be the Catholic Church, meaning that it's very much considered to be the largest church, the largest uh, church throughout the world. I mean, the Catholic Church exists in almost every country, except, of course, for the Muslim countries. And we also think today of our time of churches that have now reached what we call megachurch status. And if you've never been to one, if you're not familiar with them, uh, that it, you know, there are many churches that are large. Just because a church is large doesn't mean it falls into this category. But there are certainly some churches that have grown to the size of 50,000 people. Uh, that's too big to be a church where people can really relate to one another and, and do any, uh, anything other than basically go to a concert and a show. So we have to think about these things. We have to think about what they mean. Uh, one person wrote this. He said that we are reminded that outward growth is not always a true picture of spiritual depth. We learned this in the parable of the sower, didn't we? Outward growth is not always a true picture of spiritual depth. When it is grown, we are told, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Again, many or even most regard this as a beautiful picture of the church growing so large that it provides refuge for all the world. 
But this mustard seed plant grew unnaturally large, and it harbored birds, which in the previous parables were emissaries of Satan. Jesus told us that, didn't he? In the parable of the sower and the soils, he said the birds were Satan and his emissaries who came and snatched away the seed. And here he says the birds come and roost in the branches of the kingdom, or if you will, of the church. So in a sense, you could say here, if you were writing a little subtitle, Satan goes to church. And I believe that is what it is talking about. Uh, The tree-like growth from this mustard seed describes something very unnatural. The language suggests, according to one author, one commentator, and it's just his opinion, that Jesus was perhaps thinking of the Old Testament use of the tree as an image for a great empire, as in Ezekiel 17 or Daniel chapter 4, where evil empires grew up and God had to address those evil empires. And so we know that the birds, not only in the previous parable, but as symbols in the Old Testament as well as in other places in the New Testament, almost always um, indicate evil or demons or Satan. So there's a troubling parable or illustration that Jesus gives here about the parable of the mustard seed and to remind ourselves parables were comparisons. They were um, illustrations of a spiritual truth or of a heavenly reality brought down to our level on the earth by comparing it with something that we commonly know on the earth. Well, with that idea in mind, let's just move on to the leaven to see what he's talking about. Another parable he spoke to them The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And again, the parallel passage here is also in Luke chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, if you would like to check that out. So Jesus uses a surprising picture here of leaven. Again, many, if not most, regard this as a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God working its way through the whole world. And growing. But leaven is consistently used in the scriptures as a type of sin. So there are some who would say, and I've even heard them say this, that the leaven here is simply talking about how the, the amazing uh, effect of dough, when you put leaven in dough or yeast, as we know it by our common name today, It causes this growth to happen. It causes things to expand. And isn't that a good thing? Well, generally speaking, it can be. Certainly in the case of bread, uh, it can be. But here it's an illustration. Uh, We believe by looking back at the history and understanding of these people listening in those times to hear the illustration of leaven being used to them would have been A very frightful thing because for the Jewish year to hear it, they had the rich history of the Passover. And remember in the Passover Seder and the Passover meal, part of what they were supposed to do, given to us there in Exodus as God was liberating his people, he said to them, hide a little leaven somewhere and then have everyone search for it, especially the children, and find it and purge it from your house. So for those who would like to take leaven now and say, well, now it means something good, you're going against the grain of the preponderance of the rest of the Bible, which clearly points to leaven as a type of sin. So here it's saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It grows, but also sin infiltrates the kingdom of heaven. This sin infiltrates the church. And now we have this admixture of sin and righteousness. And in the case of the mustard seed, we have the church growing into something that perhaps it shouldn't be, and we have Satan and his emissaries coming into the church and infiltrating the church. Just to continue with the leaven illustration for a moment, this was an unusually large amount of meal. It was much more than any normal person would prepare, and again suggests the idea of massive or unnatural size. Three measures of meal would be about 40 liters, which would make enough bread to feed about 100 people. So it doesn't seem normal by the illustration that someone who's making bread at home would make enough bread for 100 people. So even the illustration itself suggests that there is something quite unusual. 
And then the phrase is used that it was hidden, that it was hidden in the dough. You wouldn't use the idea of hiding it if it were meant to be something good. The idea of hiding leaven in three measures of meal would have offended any Jewish understanding of, of this being a picture of something good coming from the leaven being placed in the bread. G. Campbell Morgan, in his opinion, wrote that the leaven represents the paganizing influences that would eventually come into the church. Uh, Last week I mentioned something uh, to you from the author J.C. Ryle, and I think he's given us a great description of helping us understand these troubling parables in something that he wrote. In the first place, this parable teaches us that good and evil will always be found together in the professing church until the end of the world. The visible church is set before us as a mixed body. It is a vast field in which weed and weeds grow side by side. We must expect to find both believers and unbelievers in the church, those who are converted and the unconverted. Let me pause there and say for a moment, we want unconverted people, we want unbelievers to come to church, don't we? We want them to hear the gospel. And that's a good thing. So we're not saying that we don't want unbelievers to come to church. What we're talking about here is people who come into the church and they profess to be believers, but they aren't. Let's come back to that, hold that thought. And uh, the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the evil one are all mingled together in every congregation of baptized people. The purest preaching of the gospel will not prevent this. In every age of the church, the same state of things has existed. It was the experience of the early church fathers. It was the experience of the reformers. It is the experience of the best ministers at the present hour. There has never been a visible church or a religious assembly of which the members have all been, quote, wheat. The devil, that great enemy of souls, has always taken care to sow tares among God's people. The most strict and prudent discipline will not prevent this admixture from happening. Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Independents, and all alike find it to be so. Do what we will to purify a church, we shall never succeed in obtaining a purely perfect communion. Tares will be found among the wheat. Hypocrites and deceivers will creep in. And worst of all, if we are extreme in our efforts to obtain purity, we do more harm Then good, we run the risk of encouraging many a Judas Iscariot and breaking many a bruised reed. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. In our zeal to gather up the tares, we are in danger of uprooting the wheat with them. Such zeal is not according to knowledge and has often done much harm. Those who care not what happens to the wheat, provided they can uproot the tares, show little of the mind of Christ. After all, there is deep truth in the charitable saying of Augustine, those who are weeds today may become wheat tomorrow. Are we ever tempted to leave one church for another because we see many of its members unconverted? Let us remember this parable and take heed what we do. We shall never find a perfect church. We may spend our lives in migrating from communion to communion and pass our days in perpetual disappointment. Go where we will and worship where we may. We shall always find tares. So an interesting perspective, and I think he hit the nail on the head in helping us understand what these parables are talking about. The church of Jesus Christ is always going to have people in it who are unbelievers. That's okay, but he's also saying, that there are people who would be emissaries of Satan. There would be false believers. Now, we don't have time this morning, but we could go through an entire study of false teachers and false believers, couldn't we? The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, when he was meeting with the elders uh, of Ephesus on the beach of Miletus, said there, um, I, I'm grieved that after my departure, uh, uh, Ravenous wolves will come in among you, and even some will arise from your own, and they will try to take over the church. And if you want to read more about this, read Paul's 
uh, letter to uh, the Galatians, how the Judaizers came in. And they professed to believe in Christ, but they also said you had to add something to the gospel to become a believer. They would be the type of tares or the leaven that we're talking about here or the birds and the mustard seed plant coming into the church. Or if you want to read Second Timothy or Second Peter or Second Thessalonians or the book of Jude, all of those talk about false teachers, false prophets coming into the church. Paul talks about in Second Corinthians, Satan and his angels disguising themselves as angels of light and coming into the church. So this idea is not a foreign idea, and it's something that Jesus is describing in these parables that would come into the church. Let's hold that thought and continue moving forward. In verse 34, it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. Now last week, we looked at the passage, you can go back and read it in the first part of chapter 13, where Jesus spoke in parables to reveal truth to those who had a hunger and a thirst for the truth, but to conceal truth from those who were blinded, who did not have the ability to see. They didn't have a spiritual discernment. Verse 35, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, something you might want to make a note of, and I'll just reference it here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. I'm not going to read all that, but Paul wrote in verse 5, which in other ages was made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. I didn't read that correctly. Which in other ages was not made known uh, to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Then down in Ephesians 3, 8 and 9, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities in the heavenly places." meaning the pleasure and the glory of God that he takes in his church. Now hold that, we're going to go through the parable of the tares, and then we're going to come back to this issue of how God looks at his church. So beginning in verse 36, uh, Jesus sent the multitudes away. The disciples came to him and said, Lord, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. So we have this illustration that Jesus himself is sowing the word of God, sowing the good seed, sowing the gospel in the world. And he says in verse 38, the field is the world. This is the gospel being preached to the world. So not only is Jesus himself preaching the gospel, but I believe Jesus is preaching the gospel through his church. He gave us the great commission at the end of the book of Matthew that we are to go forth into all the world and share the gospel to share the love of Christ with the unbelievers. So the the sower in this case is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. So now the believers, the believers are the good seed. And there, you know, so this, this shows you how we are supposed to have a positive influence, not just positive, but a positive godly influence, the influence for the gospel in the world. God has sent us, his church, to be his emissaries in the world. So the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, verse 40, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. So this is a troubling thing when we look at this. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And now in the context, you see how the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven 
are really a takeoff on what this parable is as well. So Jesus gives us a very clear understanding here. They're all listed here for us in verse 37 through verse 40, exactly what the interpretation or the understanding should be. And in verse 41, he says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. This is the gathering of the tares and will cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So clearly Jesus is speaking here of the issue of hell and that people will go to hell for their sin. This parable serves as a warning to the laborers in the field, which is the world. Unlike the Jewish form of the kingdom in the Old Testament where citizens could easily be recognized, during the church age, converts will be made from all over the world and received upon their profession of faith. Thus, it will be easier to slip in some counterfeits who profess what they do not possess. So there are going to be many people who are in churches who are professing the name of Christ, but who are not true believers. Because as it says here, and I like the way he says this, they who profess what they do not possess. How do we know? I mean, the, the parable of the sower, we talked about the three different soils. The first two, uh, we say were not believers and they bore no fruit whatsoever. The third soil, uh, the worries and the cares of the world choke out the fruitfulness of the word. But then the fourth soil was those who are fruitful. So there will be those who are in churches who are professing the name of Christ, who have the, the pen on their lapel and a Bible in their hand, but who may not have truly believed. They may not have ever understood the gospel. Now, you might argue the point that for someone to come and sit in the church and never understand the gospel, shame on the pastor or the preacher, but our job is to proclaim the word of God. It is never in our power to make someone believe. Have you ever had the experience of attempting to convince someone and sharing the gospel with them, and it just becomes an argument? You can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. It is a spiritual thing. There is the work of the Holy Spirit involved. But again, let's continue this issue of the wheat and the tares. The tares were not just weeds. They were what was called darnel wheat, which was a false kind of wheat. It was a counterfeit wheat. And when they were growing together and as they were growing up to maturity, they looked identical. The Darnell wheat had the same kind of head and stalk as a, a fully healthy grain of wheat. Uh, the Darnell was a weed that resembled wheat, but it did not come to uh, fruition. The wheat sprang up and bore grain, emphasizing that true converts produce fruitful lives. By contrast, false or professing converts produce no lasting fruit. It should be noted that a fruit, as we talked about last week, is something that God must produce in us by his power, by his spirit. Whereas a work is something we can do by our own efforts. Listen to this. Singing, preaching, ushering, teaching, and witnessing are all works by a constant loving people having a deep-seated inner joy and being at peace with people are fruit of the Holy Spirit as are righteousness and holiness. False converts may produce outstanding works, but no real fruit. So the enemy's purpose, according to the parable, in sowing tares among the wheat was to destroy the wheat. That was his purpose. Now, one commentator said this about understanding the difference between the darnel or the tare and the wheat. Listen to this. The darnel was a lighter head of grain. Therefore, when the full harvest time came, the true wheat would become heavier and bow over while the darnel wheat stood straight up. That explains how the harvesters, how the reapers would know or understand the difference. It would be this little grain. And so the darnel wheat would stand straight up, but as the, the heaviness of the wheat, you know, it comes to that point in time for the harvest, the true wheat would bow over. Now, I don't have to go far to reach for this illustration. Those who bow the knee willingly before Jesus will be the true wheat. Philippians tells us, therefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the true wheat. You see, it is God's job to judge and not ours. There are people in the church today, we might call them Pharisees, who like to go around trying to point out who the true church is and who is not. Jesus said by his own illustration that we would not be able to tell. We cannot judge the thoughts and the intents of a person's heart. Only God can do that. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of passages that talk about this. In Revelation chapter 14, as we are in the midst of the great tribulation, I'd like to read this to you. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, that is Jesus, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth. And gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is what Jesus was talking about in part, as he was talking about at the end of the age, that the angels would come and they would take out the tares, they would take out the false wheat. In the story back in Matthew chapter 8 that we already covered concerning the healing of the centurion's servant, Remember, Jesus said to him, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Talking there, again, a little snippet, pointing to the fact that there would be those who would be judged. It says here, and yet the point is clear, both in the world and in the kingdom community, ultimately it is not the job of the church to weed out those who appear to be Christians, but actually are not. That is God's job at the end of the age. As long as God's people are still in this world, the world is the field, there will be unbelievers among them. But it should not be because God's people receive unbelievers as if they were believers, ignoring either the belief or the conduct of professed believers. So he's saying here, clearly this particular commentator, uh, that we are not to simply receive people into the assembly who profess Christ, yet there's something missing from their lives. In the parable of the wedding feast, in Matthew chapter 22, it says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the gospel goes out to the world. In John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus said this, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name, Jesus praying to the Father, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world." 
So Jesus pointing to the fact that those who are truly his would be given to him out of the world. They would be saved out of the world, just as this um, parable tells us. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, coming back to this issue of what about receiving people into the body of Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have the, the story and the illustration of this man who was in the church, who was a part of the body, who was practicing uh, sexual sin, and it was known among the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, we're all going to have friends in the world who are like that. There's nothing we can do about that. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness. And we know that there was this brother in the church who was having an illicit relationship with his mother-in-law. And that's what Paul was addressing here. He says, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not, uh, do you not judge those who are inside, meaning inside the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So these are the things that other scripture talks about to help us understand these parables that Jesus has been giving. Now, coming back to Matthew 13, in verse 43, Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we've had now these first three parables, the, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, and the leaven, talking about how the kingdom of God would grow, but that there would be an infiltration of the church or of the kingdom of God by those who are the emissaries of Satan. And in many respects, the church would grow into being, while great and having a massive influence, there would be a, an influence in the church, the influence of Satan coming in. And this is part of what God is saying, this is going to happen, and we have to, in a sense, watch it happen, but we also are not the judge. God himself is the judge. Now, as we come to this next one, the parable of the hidden treasure, it's one verse, and let's read it in verse 44, because the illustration changes. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, no uh, interpretation is given by Jesus or anyone else. This parable doesn't appear in any other Gospels. So what is this parable talking about? Let's read it again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, the traditional or more popular interpretation or understanding of this parable has been that we, the believer, we, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like finding a hidden treasure in a field. It's like we find Christ. And for joy over it, we go and sell all that we have and buy that field. In other words, we, we become very committed but I don't like that approach because I don't think it is in keeping with the, the spirit and the intent as I understand it. And I think the better understanding is this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What is the treasure? What is the field? And who is the man? We need to know these things. I believe the man is Jesus Christ. I believe the field is the world, just like in the similar parable up above. And Jesus finds in this field a treasure worth having. Who or what is that treasure? I believe it is the believer, both the believer and the church. And I believe this speaks of how highly our King, our Lord, values his people. It says, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What can you and I do to have an influence on our salvation? 
How can we purchase our salvation? How can we merit or warrant God giving salvation to us? Isn't this completely against the teaching of Scripture and grace? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For God so loved the world, the field, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe that's the correct understanding. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when God sees people who love him and who believe in him, what did he do? He sent his only son, the Lord Jesus He gave all that he had, which was his son, to come and to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for our sin because there was no way humanly possible for the wrath of God to be satisfied except through Christ. What is the currency with which the man buys the field? Is it not the blood of Christ himself? Next up, the parable of the the pearl of great price in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven. Is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I believe in light of what we just talked about in the treasure hidden in the field, this parable makes complete sense. A merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Doesn't the scripture say that, especially in the Old Testament, that God is seeking those whose heart is perfect toward him? He's looking for those pearls. Who were the pearls? I believe the pearls are the people of God. And when he had found one pearl of great price, some say it's a believer, some say it's his church. I'll leave that to you. But one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This should blow our minds as a picture of grace. That God would go and give all that he had, namely his son, to come and to procure my life, your life, our salvation, so that we could be with him in heaven. When we read the early parts of the book of Revelation, we find out that God wants his worshipers, just as he said in the Gospel of John, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we find that great scene in in Revelation 4 and 5, the worship around the throne of God. In fact, let's turn there. I don't even want to leave you with the generality here. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter, we sing this in several of our songs. Hopefully I can find it. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Doesn't that fit with what we've been reading? And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And we see here, And again, just read through chapter 4 and 5 here, but this is a picture of what it is like for us that our salvation has been secured. God sent his son into the world to find that treasure of great price in that field. And he died for the sins of the whole world that he might redeem to him a people who would be his own. Same thing here with the pearl of great price. Verse 47, the parable of what we call the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into a sea and gathered a sum of every kind. Now, this is kind of a throwback to the first three that we read about. Which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. A dragnet typically would be a large net that would be strung between two boats. Think of it like a a, a giant net or screen going down into the water. And the two boats are spread out and they're going forward at the same pace and they're dragging that net. 
They're, they're trolling, if you will, trying to catch a big catch. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. So it gathered the good fish, the desirable things, but it also gathered some things that were not so desirable. When, which it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. And now he, in essence, gives us the interpretation beginning in verse 49, saying, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. He's already told us this, but he's giving these illustrations over and over in different ways to help us understand what it will be like in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heavens like this dragnet. Yes, it's going to go out. The word will go out to the whole world. And we want to bring as many people with us to the kingdom of God as possible. But in the end, God will sort out who the true believers are and those who are not. And again, he makes reference to the issue of hell. Now, Jesus speaks of hell, we're told, by those who look at these things and sort of, you know, split out and do a pie chart of how many times he talked about it. But they say Jesus talked about hell up to almost a third of the time that he taught in the Gospels. I don't know if that particular statistic is true, but he sure talks about it a lot here in this chapter. And he says here, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. In other words, there are some who teach on the topic of hell saying that hell is an annihilation of the unbeliever of the, that human soul who's being punished. And I do not believe that it's true. Uh, the scriptures say in many places, not just here, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, not in the process of dying, but it will be eternal torment. And we need to understand that that is the price of a soul who doesn't know Christ. In Luke chapter 13, You might want to write this down for later. Beginning in verse 23, there's a little passage there called the narrow door. And the disciples said to the Lord, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you were from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Let me share this with you. Let it be a settled principle with us to never be satisfied with mere outward church attendance or membership. We may be inside the net and yet not be in Christ. The waters of baptism are poured on myriads who are never washed in the water of life. The bread and the wine are eaten and drunk by thousands at the Lord's table who never feed on Christ by faith. Are we converted? Are we among the good fish? This is the grand question that is the one which must be answered at last. The net will soon be drawn to shore. The true character of every man's belief and faith will at last be exposed. There will be an eternal separation between the good fish and the bad. And there will be a furnace Uh, a fire for the wicked. Surely, as another person says, these plain words, uh, these plain words more need belief and consideration than exposition. In other words, we need to understand this and believe it in our hearts. And Jesus finished by saying to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes, Lord. I hope they did. I know that The first time I read through this, as I'm sure many of us have, we kind of wonder, what does all this mean? And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things old and new. What is this funny little saying about? Well, Jesus is taking a principle saying that anyone who would be a scribe, the general idea of a person who would be one who was entrusted with copying and understanding the scriptures, being instructed in the things of God, 
Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder, a person in responsibility in a house who manages a house, brings out of his treasure things old and new. I think what Jesus is saying here very simply is this. We already have, as he's speaking to these disciples, you have the word of God, you have the Old Testament. So you have things coming out of the Old Testament, but there's also things coming new. Remember Jesus said you can't put old wine, new wine into old wineskins, but you have to put new wine into new wineskins. And I believe that's the same thing he's saying here in sort of a very uh, focused, didactic way to his disciples Uh, that every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom is like a householder. In other words, we look at the word of God, we look at what Jesus is teaching and what he's bringing here as the new covenant, and we understand the old and the new. And as I've heard this statement for many years, I'll say it again, uh, the the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And I believe that is exactly what Jesus has been doing today. As we draw this to a close, personal application has been called the soul of preaching. A sermon without application is like a letter posted without an address. It may be well written, rightly dated, and duly signed, but it is useless because it never reaches its destination. Our Lord's question is an admirable example of real heart-searching application asking them the question and us, have you understood these things? So this morning, it's been a a tough teaching to go through these parables and attempt to understand them. Uh, There are other points of view on how to understand these parables. I'm not here to argue that. I'm just telling you what I understood as I've studied and how I understand what I believe the things that Jesus is teaching here. But I want us to understand that Jesus loves people and the gospel goes out to the whole world and we are to be purveyors of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might have a relationship with God the Father and there is no other way. In fact, the only way is through Jesus Christ. Now, as people come into the church, praise God for that. We're all on a journey. Some are coming and may not come to Christ for many years, you know, if, if they have to come and they sit and they hear the word of God and they learn and they listen, praise God for that process. As long as there's breath, there's hope. And I know many of us are hoping and praying for people and our families or, or whatnot that, you know, they may not have yet believed in Christ, but we hold out hope against hope that they might. And let's continue to do that. But all of this this morning, I believe in, in many ways is sort of zoomed out And from the spiritual level, from God's perspective in heaven, he's been giving us this perspective, this understanding that one day when the judgment comes, when the rapture of the church happens and the true believers are taken out of the world and then we enter the period of the tribulation and then people, there will be a few people who become believers through the time of the tribulation. People will be gathered into the household of the kingdom of God, but at the end of the tribulation, there will be this thing called Uh, the battle of Armageddon, and it will be where Jesus comes with his angels. And he defeats Satan for the last time, and the reapers come, the angels. And they, uh, at that point, all of the believers in the whole world, both from the, the time of the rapture and throughout the time of the tribulation, have been gathered into one place, and they've all been gathered to the household of God. They've been gathered to this place called the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're coming at that point rapidly to the end in chapter 20 where there's, there's this thing called the great white throne judgment where all of those who have not believed in Christ will receive what has been described here this morning as God separates the sheep from the goats, which is another illustration he gives later. It's separating the wheat from the tares. And in any illustration he gives, he's pointing to the fact that there will be a separation And this is not something that we should take upon ourselves ever. He said very clearly here, he is the judge. He is the one who will do the separating. Our job is to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be those who have been converted by by the gospel, who have been saved by the blood of the lamb. And the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ has come into our lives. And we now go forth into the world as light and as salt, as lovers of God and lovers of people. 
so that even when people strike us on one cheek, we, we turn it and give them the other. And if they are filled with vileness and anger and bitterness and all of that, while they beat us, we stand there and we pray for them. And we say, God, be merciful to them, a sinner, just like you were merciful to me. But for the grace of God, that could be me. And so we hold out hope against hope. We preach the gospel and we be examples in the world. And we ask the Lord to make us purveyors of the gospel, to let our lives be a light, to let our lives be an example, let our words be the words of Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you have never believed in him, it's a great time, isn't it? To give your heart to Christ. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for the time that you've given us this morning from your word. We, we love you. We bless you. We're so grateful that we are your sons and daughters. And for any Lord who may not have yet believed, may this be the moment where they simply say to you, Lord, I believe, I, I come, I want to be. Uh, I want to be with the good fish. I want to be with the wheat. I want to be with you, Lord, in your kingdom. And so, Lord, this morning I come and I ask you for forgiveness and I give my life to you. And Lord, I don't even know what all that means, but I do it because I know you're calling me. And as I do so, Lord, I have faith and I have trust that you will do something in my heart, in my life. And Lord, for those of us this morning who know you, may you do a fresh work in our lives. May we walk forward in faith and in truth and in grace. And may we be more in love with you now than ever. May our love grow daily as the, the calendar days tick by, Lord. May you bear fruit in our lives 30, 60, and 100-fold. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.